The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Good Thursday to you all. Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today, our final all-fantasy show of the week, where we'll be breaking down the non-boring value guys of the Dan Bespris Old Man Squad. That'll be the focal point of today's podcast. We'll also recap yesterday's game between the Hawks and the 76ers, where our free play was a hit. Remember, we had our nice strong lean on the Hawks, and that came through with... uh, well, little fanfare. I mean, they were barely out of the money. I think they trailed by more than eight points for like a minute or two in that ball game. But generally, that thing was close the whole way through. And there was no reason to think that it wouldn't be, based on everything we've seen of how the Bucks play basketball. They picked on a Heat team in the first round that just had nothing in the tank, much like the Lakers and really most other teams that went deep into the bubble last year. And then it took James Harden playing on one leg and Kyrie Irving to be out for the Bucs to get past the Nets. Not that Kevin Durant is not a one-man wrecking crew, but the Hawks right now are a better team than Kevin Durant and whatever the rest of the Brooklyn Nets are called these days. Because James, Harden, that wasn't James Harden. I don't care what anybody says. He wasn't close. He was playing at like 60%, maybe. If Harden was healthy, they probably win. If Kyrie was healthy, the Nets probably win. But the Bucks got really lucky, and then it looked like, oh, sweet, the Hawks took care of a Philly team that is cracking. Philly should have won that series anyway, but they didn't. Joel Embiid obviously frustrated, didn't get enough out of the other guys. Doc Rivers, some weird rotations, whatever. And it all just seemed to be lining up quite nicely for Milwaukee. But we even mentioned on yesterday's podcast, this was not going to be a series where the Hawks are about to roll over. They're coming in with a ton of momentum. They're feeling great about themselves, big-time upsets. I didn't think that their, the win over New York was an upset. We, I, we Right on this podcast, that was the first-round play that we gave out on this show as the biggest one, Atlanta over New York, because the Hawks' defense was vastly underrated. We had a lean slightly to the over in yesterday's game, didn't really lean into it very much. My thought on that front was that each team was going to kind of throw their fastball. And the Bucks play a lot of drop coverage, which is going to allow Atlanta to get into their offense pretty quickly. Uh, question marks for me were, what was the hangover from the previous series going to look like? Were the shots actually going to be dropping? Well, they did. Game went over the posted total. 229 was the final number. Uh, 225 was the final line. I should say 229 was the actual final total of the ball game. And we'll talk more about what that means for future games on tomorrow's podcast, where we'll be breaking down both of the uh, the different conference finals, because we got a matchup coming up tonight. But certainly from that first one, Atlanta-Milwaukee Hawks getting one on the road. They've done this in each of their series, gone into a place and come up with a victory. I will say this, though. uh, I expect Chris Middleton to be much better going forward. I mean, that was a really poor ball game for him. Drew Holiday finally woke up. Bucks, uh, it's, a, it's a weird box score. You know, they they lean so heavily on their main guys. Um, Brooke Lopez being basically taken out by Trey Young 
is a new wrinkle for this one, the Giannis at center lineups. You might have to see more of that from Milwaukee. But again, I don't want to do too much of that on this podcast. I want to break down that series on tomorrow's show. We do need to talk a little bit about Phoenix and the Clippers. I don't know why I went with the city for one and the team name for the other, but whatever, that's where we're at right now. Uh, Phoenix favored by one in Los Angeles. Chris Paul is probable for this ball game, which I didn't think there was a, a shot in hell of that happening based on the reporting we were getting. But this leads me to believe that his test, if, if indeed he did have a positive test, uh, that means that it then went negative pretty damn fast. Otherwise, what we just learned is that Chris Paul isn't vaccinated and has an exposure or had an exposure. Which, I mean, this, this timeline does kind of parallel that from the middle of the NBA season. Not that it really matters which direction any of this points to, but the fact that all of this data was kept under wraps is why we just, betting into this series at any point, was playing Western Conference Finals chicken. We didn't really know who was going to come back first. I thought, all right, well, you know, John Gambadoro, whatever his name is, reported there was a positive test, and we haven't seen anybody come back from a positive COVID test in less than two weeks. And we're just over the one-week mark right now for Chris Paul being placed into protocol. So now I'm led to believe that maybe that was wrong, or maybe that tweet got taken down. I don't know. But it seems like perhaps maybe someone in Paul's immediate circle tested positive, and he was exposed to it, and has then been quarantining for a week. He got his tests, negative, 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 for six, seven days in a row. Uh, and so then when he didn't catch it, whatever the heck we're talking, I mean, that's the, the sort of, the expectation is they do negative tests for about seven days. If there's no sign of viral load, then you can come back and play. So that, I guess, is what we got going on here. I don't think, I mean, really, honestly, Chris Paul not playing basketball for like a week and a half is not the worst thing in the world. I know that from a conditioning standpoint, there's a lot of, stuff going on there but if he really was fully asymptomatic which i saw that reported yesterday so that probably is accurate and i have to i would guess that chris paul probably has plenty of things in his home he can use to stay at least somewhat mobile and he's just been studying this series for the last five days um he'll be reintegrated with no problem at all Kawhi leonard is still out so, uh, you know, it's one of those weird things. So, obviously, the Clippers had this great opportunity in Game 2 to steal it and then let DeAndre Ayton dunk an out-of-bounds play with one second left on an alley-oop pass to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, as the silly old expression goes. The Clippers shot 45% of the Suns that shot 49% in that ball game. Clippers had a few more free throws and a bunch more three-pointers and that type of stuff might continue. The Clippers getting more free throws and shooting more three-pointers. The opening game of this series, Clippers had 17 free throws to the Suns, 9. They made 23s to the Suns, 13. Those are the areas where the Clippers have an edge. They played better defense in Game 2, slowing down Devin Booker, who had 20 points on 17 shots. But Cam Payne went nuts. DeAndre Aiden was good again, but it was really Cameron Payne that lit him up in that ball game. And so 
if you're the Clippers, I, I think you probably continue with a relatively similar game plan on Booker here in Game 3. But now, instead of saying, well, you know, we got blitzed, campaign had the game of his career, you've got Chris Paul who can do this every single game. This is a rough spot. If you're the Clippers, you're in a rough spot. I know they're going to come out fighting, and so I don't think I want anything to do with the side in this ball game. Uh, I have a very poor read on what the public thinks is going to happen. Uh, I would venture to guess that everybody's coming in on the Suns. If I had to just guess, take a wild shot in the dark, I would say people are probably coming in on Phoenix uh, because Chris Paul came back and the line seems relatively low. But it's also possible that folks are glomming onto this idea that the Clippers, well, they have to win game three. This is the have to win game where the series is over. And so maybe they get a little bit of a bounce from that standpoint. So perhaps those numbers cancel out a little bit. We saw from Phoenix against Denver, they're not taking their foot off the gas. They're not. They're the better team with no Kawhi Leonard on the floor. They're, I would venture to say, the far superior team in this matchup. Uh, and so all of my instincts say the Suns are just going to go in there and whip them up in game three. Uh, but the question mark there is, how does Chris Paul look coming back from not playing for 10 days? Basically, I think they're, I don't remember exactly when they wrapped up their series with Denver, but it's been a little bit yet. And do you get one of those Mondo Paul George games? Because he's been not good in this series so far. Reggie Jackson has been pretty good, uh, but it's it's largely been they 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 need something more. Paul George is actually pretty good in the first game, I guess, but it took him twenty six shots to get to thirty four points. So there's going to be this hot game at some point for the Clippers, where they're just going to wake up and things are going to go in. Is this that one? There is that fear at least on the side. But again, we've seen from Phoenix, they've got really good game plans and they are good on defense. They are disciplined. They know what they're going to do. They know what they're giving up and they can cover most of what the Clippers are trying to run. So it's just going to have to be guys hit shots for LA. So ever so slightly into Phoenix in a game that's basically a pick at this point. And then the total, 221 and a half. A little bit interesting that it didn't come down much off of the Tuesday line, which was 222 and a half, and the game finished at 207. Perhaps it's because of that first ball game that hit 234. But even then, I looked at, I, I said on this podcast, and I said talking to Gil on Tuesday on, uh, on VEASAN, Gil Alexander, who I'm talking about on uh, a numbers game on VEASAN Satellite Radio. Love doing those appearances. Big thank you to Gil for bothering to invite my sorry butt onto his thing. Um, the pace of that game on Sunday completely belied the 234 total. And the great fear I had was that you'd see a big uptick in free throws, and that would wipe out the fact that the pace of that Sunday game was really more in the, like, Clippers should have been at around 105-ish points, give or take, and Phoenix, I mean, they barely had any possessions at all because they just made every shot they took, so they didn't need many offensive rebounds, and they didn't get many free throws, but, you know, their pace was around 100 possessions, and they scored 120. So that game went over by, like, a solid 30 over the expected total of a average offensive team, and then this last one... Uh, believe it or not, the pace was pretty close to the same. Clippers had about 100 possessions. 
Suns had about 102 possessions, so uh, they were ever so slightly better than an average offensive performance, and the, and the free throws were higher in that one. Shooting came down a little bit. So I, like, I'm, I'm still leaning towards the under. We know Chris Paul actually likes to slow the game down and run a half-court stuff. Will he get Phoenix better looks? Yeah, probably. Although, again, I think you probably look at this game as if you want to sort of hedge against the handicap we've talked about so far. Is this the Clippers shoot-the-lights-out game? If so, Clippers and the over make a lot of sense. Is this another one where Phoenix just imposes their will and slows the Clippers down? Do the Clippers figure out a way to slow Phoenix down with Chris Paul back? I don't know. Phoenix and the under probably make more sense as kind of a correlated pair as well. But I don't think I even introduced the podcast. So officially, welcome to Fantasy NBA Today. I'm your host, Dan Bespris. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Hoopball Tweets. Yeah, we got Hoopball Fantasy, but Hoopball Tweets, that's where I want you guys looking in the offseason. Check out the fine work of our uh, good buddy here, Brad Harden, the host of the Hoopball Hawks podcast. He's having a lot of fun right now. G, I wonder why, at Hoopball Hawks is the Twitter handle there. They'll tweet out anytime a new episode comes through, but he's doing a wonderful job. That show is growing like a weed here as the Hawks make their way through the playoffs, so that's really cool to watch. And uh, that's our little hoop ball promo for the morning. The website, of course, is hoop-ball.com. Boy, I and just looking back at what we just talked about a minute ago, I guess our our small play today would be on the under in uh, Clippers Suns again. If we're gonna get down on something, we'll go right back to the well and hope that the Clippers don't just hit every shot they take because uh, that would blow that up. Or I guess we could just give out a pair of correlated parlays if either one of them hits. Go a quarter unit on a uh, Clippers over pair and a quarter unit on a Suns under pair. And if one of them hits, you end up in a... Uh, it should be a slightly positive day, right? Nah, we'll run the math on that later. Um, all right, let's talk about some fantasy stuff now. After reminding you guys to go use the promo code HoopBall at mybookie.ag and the promo code HoopBall20 with our buddies over at Manscaped.com, the Dan... Non-boring value, guys, is the one group of players we haven't talked about yet among the old man squad. And it was an addition, an addition, it was one we added for this season. Because I thought, you know what, we have this list and it's all these boring dudes that are just falling too far. But everybody wants to know, who are the guys with a little bit of buzz that I'm willing to take the plunge on? And so this year I made up a, here's some guys who are a little buzzy that I thought might actually be worth the buzz. And this one was very much kind of a 50-50 play. The first name on the list was Pascal Siakam, who I thought was getting too much buzz and then kind of got talked into it a little bit, largely because his his per-game stuff from last year, I liked. He was number 39. Seemed like he was primed to get his field goal percent back up a little bit with everything else staying relatively similar. And so I thought, all right, well, you know, he's probably going to miss a few games because the Raptors overplay their guys on the minutes, and that ends up with guys sitting out some ball games. But Siakam had a preseason rank of 32, and I thought he'd probably be around that on a per-game basis, maybe a little bit above it, like 28-29, and play about league average, maybe one or two more games than league average in games played. But I'll be the first to admit, 
I was quite wrong on that one. Not only did he not hit his mark on a per-game basis, where he was number 54, uh, things just sort of peeling back for Siakam this year. Um, Hard to really put a finger on why. Field goal percent stayed the same. Free throw percent went up. Scoring was down about a point and a half. Three-pointers came down a bunch. So the fact that those came down, but field goal percent didn't go up, that was a bit of a... A clumsy little knock, but assists went up. So it's not 100% clear why the per-game rank trended in the wrong direction other than, I guess, three-pointers. Now, the totals rank, on the other hand, that one's a little bit easier to isolate. Dude played 56 out of their 72 games this year, and so by totals, he was number 58, a little bit back of his per-game rank. Not by much, because nobody played that many ball games this year. He was only like three less than league average. But uh, number 58 means that if you spent a late third, early fourth round pick on him and he played more like a late fifth, that's a loss. That's a loss. Can't mark that one down as a win. We were off on Siakam. Uh, Looking ahead, we'll have to see where his preseason rank is. I think he's probably going to be better next year. No Kyle Lowry. Probably. I guess he could re-sign. Uh, and then just like a year of health. If you're not dealing with a team that's constantly in and out of COVID protocols all season long, I've got to think that that weighed a bit on him. So my hope is that if his three-pointers really are lower this coming year, that the field goal percent will trend back the right way. And then if everything else holds, he becomes something of like a CJ McCollum power forward type where you just sort of know almost exactly what you're getting. You set your clock to it and... That's fine. Like, if he gets drafted around 40, I'm fine taking him there because he'll probably do no worse than about 50, give or take. I'd rather aim higher, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. So that one was a loss, a small loss, but a loss nonetheless. The next one, DeJounte Murray, who had a preseason rank of 66, which at the time I thought was completely bat bleep crazy with the expectation that he would take a step forward this year. And in fact... On a per-game basis, it was right on the nose. He was number 63 by averages this year, number 35 by total. So that was a good thing for Murray. His injury stuff in the past seemed a bit more fluky than anything else. He played 67 out of 72 games this season. That's a good thing. Everything, for the most part, went up for Murray. Field goal percent stayed about the same despite about five additional shots per ball game. So his scoring was up from 11 to 16. Rebounds up, assists up, steals ever so slightly down. Same thing with blocks. That was a little weird to see. But I mean, he's a big-time steals guy, so fluctuating between 1.5, 1.7 is really not that big of a deal. Although last year he did 1.7 in 25 and a half minutes a game, only 1.5 in 32 minutes a game this year is... Unusual, and maybe some of that comes with having the much larger offensive role. But I'd like to, I think we can safely give him a durability check mark. He played 66 games last year in the weird season, 81 the season before that. Uh, season before that, he was, he was dealing with some injury. I mean, he's been coming off of injury, and then he still manages to stick with it. Last year, last season, in the, in the, the COVID shortened one. He was sort of on and off the injured list, so his minutes were artificially depressed a little bit. But this year, he was basically there. He basically played it through. And Spurs are just going to keep getting younger. 
on a season by season basis here. The the Spurs and DeMar DeRozan seem unlikely to uh, be together long term. So there's just sort of more DeJounte Murray in the hopper. So I think you got to like what you got here. 35, that final totals rank is is right on where we had him. We had him listed at 35 as a final totals rank. Admittedly, I thought he would play, well, actually 67 is about the target for us. I thought his per game mark might be a tiny bit higher. But luckily, because nobody played games this year, the fact that he did miss five games was actually better than our handicap of him missing five games. I figured everybody was going to miss about 10, 11 games, and then everybody instead missed 12 or 13. So we got a little tiny bonus there. Basically, if he was around the top 50 on a per-game basis missing five games, I think this is where I had him at about 35 instead because everybody missed so many ball games. He didn't need to be top 50. He needed to be more like top 60 and miss five ball games. Next name, so that's a win. Next name on the list is Mitchell Robinson, who I think was on his way to a small victory this year before injuring himself twice. So we can't call that one a win. We have to call that one a loss, which is a pain in the butt because his minutes were up to 28. The blocks and steals were coming around. Everything looked pretty good. Then he was easing his way back in after the first injury, and then the second injury happened. And so it just, the season all came apart for Robinson uh things if everything was so damn promising for the first however long it was he played until what February 12th is when he got hurt came back a month and a half later played four games and then got hurt again I mean he had some games in there that were robust to say the least now Nerland's Noel breathing down his neck was a problem but Nerland's I'm assuming is going to get more money elsewhere next year so I think we're, we're kind of staring down the barrel of a wonderful Mitchell Robinson post-hype year because I thought he was a hype guy that could actually beat his top 50 rank and he didn't get close to that because of the injuries. Like, it wasn't even... It's not even worth mentioning. And even on a per-game basis, he was back near... Uh, he was in the 60s for a while and then he tapered off and then got hurt and then playing, you know, 14, 15 minutes a couple times and then six minutes got hurt. That thing kind of blew up the plan for him so the numbers are not entirely accurate. If you were just looking at the first, like, five-ish weeks, he was more like top 60. And playing every day, although, again, that evaporated on the injuries. So I, I do think that this is still a guy you're looking at as someone with top 50 per game potential, maybe better. And then you just have to hope that there are no more fluky injuries. But that's tough. And You know, he's coming off a really bad year. You're going to have to have some stones to roll the dice on him, but that's a loss. Next one is a loss as well. That's Aaron Gordon, who had a preseason rank of 84. But I figured at 84, and he probably would slip a little bit later than that. So you're talking about an eighth-round play, most likely, that I thought, all right, well, like, second half of last year, this was a guy who was posting top 40 per-game numbers. Is this something that could actually stick? And the answer was no, Dan. No, it couldn't. He was outside the top 200 on a per-game basis, thanks to abysmal percentages again 64 percent at the free throw line that's basically a career low if you eliminate one postseason run it is a career low 63 percent during his time in orlando this season 44 percent from the field in orlando this year and just ugly all around 2.7 turnovers per game 
Steals and blocks were nearly non-existent. Everything about it is hateable. Eminently hateable. Ugh, what a gross year. Rebounding was down. Yuck. You will not sucker me into this one again. He had that little run at the end of last season, before the season, before the league shut down, where it looked like, oh, he's figuring it out. Nope. Only thing good about Aaron Gordon this year is he averaged a career-high 4.2 assists per game during his time in Orlando, and then got traded, and he was a total afterthought in Denver. What a mess. No. Pass. Wendell Carter Jr., I kind of got talked into this one. I'm irritated about this. Wendell Carter Jr. under Billy Donovan was this kind of, oh, well, you know, the rebirth. Nope. Nope. He is who he is at this point. He's just not that great. He was getting outplayed by Mo Bamba after the trade to Orlando. Frequently. He's not great on a defensive side. He's not a world-class rebounder. He's only shooting 50%, which isn't high enough for someone who's basically doing his work right around the rim. Took a three-pointer this year. Great. Don't care. Shot, what? He's a 24% career three-point shooter. Not good at the foul line. I guess he's an okay rebounder. I don't know if I said... Yeah, I mean, that's like where you're at. If he could get 30 minutes a game, he could be a one-steal, one-block guy, but... The other stuff, I mean, he just, he, he just is a top 100 kind of center. Without carte blanche, that's just who he is. Irritated. Got talked into that one. Um, so that's a loss, and that's annoying because he wouldn't have been on my list unless everybody was like, oh, Wendell Carter Jr., this is the time. Whatever. Uh, Brandon Clark is the next one. This is really surprising. Every analyst on the planet got this one wrong, so at least I don't feel so bad about it. Brandon Clark, preseason rank of uh, 94. Where did I put him out at? 95 was the preseason rank. He was 114 on a per-game basis, which, again, like that's not going to kill you. It's not that big of a whiff. Uh, 107 by totals because he played basically about league average number of ball games, But... The expectation was that he would get a ton of run in Memphis, especially with Jaron Jackson Jr. missing almost the entire regular season. But Brandon Clark did not take the step forward that everybody was hoping for. In fact, his shot went funky on him. He was in and out of being healthy this year. I mean, the 69% of the free throw line, 52% from the field. What happened? He has all the markers of being a post-type guy, but the fact that his minutes didn't really change at all, despite, again, no JJJ, Brandon Clark might start getting phased out if other guys are just getting better around him, and he's not. I'd be more inclined to take the Mitchell Robinson plunge next year than the Brandon Clark plunge. Again, knowing that they're not going to be drafted at the same point, uh, but I, I have low hopes for Clark based on what I saw this year in terms of his game regressing. And even if he does get a little bit better, there's no guarantee he plays more than 24 minutes a game because that's just how things go in Memphis. So that's a small loss, but a loss nonetheless. Now, luckily, a few wins. The non-boring guys towards the back end with an ADP of 99, Jeremy Grant. That one was a... Uh, a really easy winner for most of the season, although he tapered off at the end when he kind of stopped playing ball games. Uh, but Jeremy Grant was basically inside the top 50 for the better part of the year. His 
he got tired. You could see he's got tired. His field goal percent went into the toilet the last month and a half of the season. He finished at 82, believe it or not, on a per-game basis. I think that surprised some people that he wasn't higher than that. Finished in the 80s by totals as well. Just a couple slots back of that marker. But that's a hit on Jeremy Grant. I had his final rank at 75, pretty close. Um, so he beat his marker. So that's a good one. Norman Powell, with a preseason rank of 113, looked for the first four weeks like he was going to be a total unmitigated disaster, but guys started getting hurt in Toronto. He slid into the starting lineup there, dominated, finished at number 74 after the trade to Portland. He was solid enough there. By totals, he was number 36. Thank you, Norman Powell. And your weird durability on a team where no one is durable. He played in 69 out of 72 ball games this year. He was good wherever they put him. Uh, and Norman Powell turned out to be a whopper of a hit from the Dan Vespers non-boring value guys. Although you, some people find him boring. So maybe he should have just been in the Dan Vespers old man squad to begin with. Same with the next guy who, by the way, on Norman Powell, um, handicap was a little bit wrong because I thought he would have a pretty good role even when Toronto was healthy, but he had some confidence issues at the beginning of the year, and Toronto insisted, or Tampa, whatever the hell they were, insisted on playing more traditional lineups for the first few weeks, and then Nick Nurse was like, all right, we got we to gotta get silly here, or we're going to get run out of the building, and then Norm Powell slid in and never, never left at that point. Um, Powell's a guy that, looking towards the future, he... He badly needs shots to hit value because his thing is uh, pretty good percentages, good free, very good free throw shooter, and intermittently a very good field goal percent guy. He was better in Toronto than he was in Portland this year, although I think some of that was probably adjustment factor, uh, and some steals. But he doesn't rebound, he doesn't pass, so you're going to have to get it from the points and the steals sort of a narrow band of things you need from a particular basketball player. There is a player option for this coming season for $11.5 million. My guess is that he probably will decline that option. I don't know when the, the deadline is for that, but he'll make more than 11 mil in free agency. Or even if he does make 11, he'll make it over more than one year. So uh, he'll opt out. I don't know where he's going to end up. If he goes back to Portland, then you got to wait and see if guys like C.J. McCollum are still there because... Everybody on the Blazers is in the rumor mill these days. Someone staying, someone going, who knows. And the last name on the Dan Bespris non-boring value guys was the alternate to the alternate logo for the Dan Bespris old man squad, so I don't know how he ended up in the non-boring section. The mighty Nerlens Noel, who finished at number 75 on a per-game basis. Thank you, Mitchell Robinson's injury, because that was better than we could have ever expected this year. And despite the fact that he does tend to take a game off every two weeks, was better than league average in terms of durability. Noel playing in 64 out of New York's 72 regular season game. Averages five points per game this year. Six and a half rebounds. A steal, 2.2 blocks. Love that. Six and a half rebounds was fine. Only one turnover. The blocks and the steals, 3.3 combined. 61% shooting from the field, managed 71% at the free throw line, which won't really hurt you at all. And uh, he's another guy that feels like he's on his way to finally getting paid a little bit, but who knows? This seems to happen to him every year. There was that rumor that the Mavs offered him a ton of money two years ago, and he turned it down. I think that they've declined 
that that's real. But I don't know. He made five mil this year on a one-year contract with the Knicks. He certainly has shown himself to be one of the best backup centers in the NBA. So someone's going to give him at least that, probably more, for more than one year. And uh, he'll go out there and get you three defensive stats a game in 20 minutes again. I love it. I love it. I'll go back to the well on Noel as well. Uh, He outperformed any of our expectations. He finished at number 51 on the year. I had him... uh, in the late 50s in my ranking, so I was pretty high on him, and he beat it. Again, Mitchell Robinson being out obviously helped that quite a bit. Um, Even if Mitch Rob was healthy, I still think Noel has a decent season. Probably doesn't get into the 50s, but you're probably looking at 70s or 80s by totals for him because he was, even prior to Robinson's injury, ramping up towards 20 minutes of ballgame, and we've seen what he's capable of doing in 18 minutes per game. What I'd like for Noel is to end up on a team that plays a little faster on offense where the offense isn't being run by a power forward. That was a bad fit for him offensively and a Knicks team that didn't really have any good point guards. I mean, they're Alfred Payton, uh, Frank Nilakina, Emmanuel Quickly. None of these guys is good. Derrick Rose is the closest thing they had by midseason, but even there, there wasn't a ton of chemistry. So, get me, I mean, we saw Noel. The reason he was so successful in 18 minutes last year was that he was on a Chris Paul team. Get him on a team. It doesn't need to be Chris Paul-level point guard play, but get him on a team with a decent point guard play in 20 minutes where the offense, again, is not being run through a power forward that needs to have the lane clear, and Noel can go get you those tip slams. That, I mean, that's how he got a lot of his points just gravitating towards the rim, which he wasn't really allowed to do in New York's offense, which also was a very slow offense. A little pace, a little point guard play, and Noel could be even better on a per-minute basis. So I'll probably go back to the well on that one, although again, we'll have to see where he actually ends up before making our final call on that particular note. And on that particular note, we will take our leave from you here on Fantasy NBA Today. Tomorrow, Friday's show, we'll wrap up the week with a deeper dive on the playoff battles happening so far. We'll probably also dabble in a little bit of fantasy stuff uh, and get you situated for the weekend. It's a Friday weekend show, of course, and we'll loop back around again until Monday. That'll be show 30 of our offseason. Again, check out Brad Harden over on our at Hoopball Hawks, the Hoopball Atlanta Hawks podcast. So good right now. They are rumbling through the postseason. Uh, Brandon Marcus, of course, who we've had on this show many times. The Clippers pod, that one also still in effect. We don't have a Phoenix Suns pod or a Milwaukee Bucks pod. So, just saying. What did I just say? Yeah, write me. At Dan Vespers on Twitter. Have a great Thursday, everybody. For Fantasy NBA Today, I am Dan Vespers. We'll talk to you tomorrow. So long.